Hi, it's John here. When you think about Canadian success stories, about solid, sustainable businesses that would be recognized anywhere in the world, which names come to mind? Shopify, perhaps? Cirque du Soleil? Or maybe Drake's label, OVO Sound? These are all examples of Canada's new intangibles economy, an economy based not just on physical products, but on designs, on images, on ideas. In other words, on intellectual property. And as our country charts a path out of the downturn caused by COVID-19, there's a new push to put IP at the center of the recovery. IP is worth an estimated $7 trillion a year to the US economy. It's the new gold medal game of innovation. But Canada, unfortunately, ranks 22nd for output right after Slovenia on the latest Global Innovation Index. And a big part of the reason is that we aren't patenting and building companies that own, protect, and leverage intangible assets. Take this example. Microsoft alone registered more patents than all of Canada did last year. So how can we close the gap and create a culture of internationally competitive scale-ups? In other words, how do we make Canada an IP powerhouse? This is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. How we leverage IP is going to be critical to our recovery from COVID. The next chapter of our economy is going to be far more data-driven and digital than anything we've seen. Every business in the country is going to have to think about the global economy through a new lens and through an IP lens. But what exactly is IP? To find out, we turn to the Canadian Council of Innovators. Here's the CCI's Dana O'Born. Think of IP as commercializing an idea. So certain products of human intellect ought to have protective rights that apply to the physical property that we have in our world. And so IP is really there to help protect the intangible side of that. So stem cell out of British Columbia is a great example. A biosciences company um, have a, a large patent portfolio that has supported uh, the growth of their company. Shopify is another really good example. I think they have seen tremendous growth over the past few years and even more so in the past eight months. But historically, I think we can point to companies like BlackBerry or Research in Motion and even Nortel at their heyday. The two of those companies really had a good grasp of how to derive wealth from their IP strategies across the board. And, and I think it's evident in seeing how you know well BlackBerry has done recently. I think that's an attestation as well to how large and robust their IP portfolio is. Our guest today is someone who knows a little something about IP. He's a well-known Canadian businessman and philanthropist. He commercialized 44,000 patents during his time as the co-CEO of RIM and calls himself, in his words, the largest commercial IP protagonist in Canadian history. Jim Balsilli, welcome to Disruptors. Great to be with you, John. Jim, you're in Waterloo today, and it's one of Canada's leading hubs of innovation and tech change. Just before we get into a conversation about IP, I wonder if you can give us a sense of how the community has been handling the pandemic, especially in terms of innovation. It's been a mixed bag. Of course, they've had disrupted uh, operations and they've had an inability to travel and meet customers. And some of their customers have been stung. But the freezing of the border has really helped their talent hiring quite a bit. And their, their organizations tend to be able to operate remotely. So 
they're great companies. Um, there's some great CEOs. They, they want to build global champions. They want to be part of nation building. And there's some admirable leaders and admirable companies really uh, coming on strong. I, I really miss being able to get to Waterloo as much as I, I used to. There are great companies. There's also uh, extraordinary schools, including the University of Waterloo. And when we think of Canadian innovation, probably a lot of people's minds go straight to Waterloo. I wonder if you can give us a sense of what there is to the Waterloo model of innovation when it comes to IP and also maybe where it's falling a bit short. Well, I would say there's not really a, a Waterloo model per se. There's some really good and savvy CEOs who are building strong companies and there are those that are, are less savvy. But the one thing all of them have in common that are growing successfully is they're very shrewd with their IP, whether it's Magnet Forensics or Desire to Learn or IntelliJoint or Zonify. That is the precondition. And, and you can own your IP in a lot of different ways through contracts and patents, copyrights, trademarks, lots of different things. But uh, I wouldn't say there's any one model, but I think there's a waking up by the broader ecosystem that they, they need to up their game on this if they want to be successful and participate in the wealth effects of the ideas economy. I heard you give a presentation at the Monk School at U of T, and you had an extraordinary statistic that compared patents in Canada to uh, patent creation in Canada to the U.S. And if I remember correctly, I think the number for the University of Waterloo for a year was roughly equal to what the University of Utah does in a day. Whatever the gaps are, and you could make the same comparison between all sorts of schools and regions between Canada and the U.S., what are we missing? No, I, I don't think Waterloo does what Utah does in a day, it's what Utah does in a coffee break. So it's about $39,000 that year and Utah was $210-$12 million. So it's really what you aim at. We had a policy orthodoxy in this country that everything was about creating ideas and spreading ideas, not owning ideas. And, and they believed that if you brought in foreign companies, you would get all the spillovers of the technology and the management and the supply chain. But when you go to ideas, they extract the wealth and they don't bring machinery. And I mean, what's, what's Facebook's supply chain in Canada? So if you don't aim at the right thing, if you don't train for it, you don't get it because it's technical and it's based on a principle restriction. So you either learn how to restrict it or you lose it. And that's why we lost it because we had a, a policy orientation that it didn't matter. I wonder if you can take us back a bit in time into the to, to the RIM experience, because it was uh, incredibly successful at patenting uh, and yet ran into all sorts of challenges that have been well documented over the years. Briefly, what in hindsight should we learn about IP from the RIM experience? If you look at RIM now, most of their revenue or their most profitable revenue now is still the licensing of the patents that were filed 10, 15 years ago. So it's still the main revenue stream. RIM's issues was a business decision. It was a strategy decision. We had a difference of opinion that whether we should focus on new forms of hardware or focus on a, 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 an open messaging platform. And I lost that uh, debate at the boardroom and resigned from the board on it. But RIM's issues weren't strategy; they weren't IP issues. They were they were strategy issues. So the IP strategy, in a way, was successful because it's still generating that revenue. Yeah, well, if you see the, from the, I mean, I'm not close to it, but you see what they talk about, all their one-time licenses and their plans on their portfolio. I think from the bit I've read, it's still an extremely important part of their 
revenue and profit strategy. Um, and they were, and patents take a few years to season. So all those good patents, you know, in the late two, you know, 2006, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, when they've really seasoned and become very, very valuable. And I think they have a strategy to harness those uh, as any smart company would. Yeah, a more typical Canadian story, maybe what we saw uh, at North, Thelm uh, the old Thelmic Labs that was sold to Google this summer. Some really neat work going on there, strong IP and yet sold to a global company uh, for a number of reasons. And some people feel that's not a bad outcome because they're now part of a, a global company, have access to resources and networks that they wouldn't uh, otherwise, and the work may still go on in Waterloo. How do you view this kind of perennial Canadian challenge of coming up with great ideas, building them, seasoning them, as you say, and then entrepreneurs feel they need to sell? In order to scale well if you're gonna if you're gonna sell it's better to get a billion dollars for your idea than a few million you know what happened with north is, is they sold for, were sold for peace parts and and a penny or two on the dollar and then google promptly shut it down so i don't think that's something anybody's aiming at but it's quite all right to have a natural exit but you need to make sure you get your fair share of the wealth effect so if you noticed all of the characterizations of Waterloo, they say one place it falls short, its exits are very, very small. So they're getting $5 million instead of 500 million or 10 million instead of 2 billion and say, well, if we just got more money, well, people pay you no more than they have to. So it's when you own something valuable in the ideas economy based on restriction, then you can command a big dollar. So if you want to get bigger exits, own valuable ideas, or if you want to commercialize a bigger company, also own other ideas. It's not bad to sell a company, but you should get proper value for it. I imagine most successful young entrepreneurs in this country come to you for advice. And I'm guessing that you advise them to hold on for uh, something big or something better. What prevents them from doing that? Well, we started a um, an organization. There was 12 of us in the 90s, and I signed the incorporation papers for it, and we called it Communitech. And it was a lobby of the companies because, you know, it was a time when HP and IBM and NCR and Microsoft dominated kind of the, the economic policy discourse in our area. And so we took back our ecosystem, and we all grew, and everybody made a lot of money. So we want to get back to being part of that wealth effects for, you know, venture capitalists, taxpayers, philanthropists, and just good jobs and, and, and all of that. And I think we're, we're poised on that. We're on the cusp of it. And, and I think we're going to, we have an optimistic era. And these are the people that are saying, let's have public policy focus on prosperity strategies and let's focus on nation building. And they're the ones that are exhorting and challenging the federal government, as they should, as we did in the 90s. And, and then along this journey, I think it was in 2015, uh, you helped create the Council of Canadian Innovators, which includes all sorts of uh, terrific companies, Shopify, uh, Wattpad, Hootsuite. And that's really become the voice of the so-called new economy. What impact has, uh, has that effort had over the last five years? Well, I think it's had tremendous impact because they've rediscovered their voice. I mean, many of the CEOs said over the previous 10 years, they'd been shunted back out of the, the policy discourse. And, you know, I've had, I had a call with 30 tech CEOs in BC yesterday that are looking to join on top of the 11 we have there. I had a call with a couple of weeks ago to a couple dozen in Alberta and, and 
that, that, and we've opened office in both of those places. And I had the same conversation in Quebec, the same in Toronto, Ontario. Everybody said, we're elbowed out and foreign tech speaks on behalf of us and universities speak on behalf of us and incubator administrators speak on behalf of us. We want to speak for us. And so that's the key thing. It's a purity of purpose. They are your racehorses. They're the ones that need to drive the wealth. They're the ones that will really champion the country. And they're very fearless. They're excellent businessmen. They're courageous. They're determined. They're global. And that's got to be the primary call. And not this capture, this regulatory capture by foreign tech that's happened in Canada, or this administrator complex that came in and elbowed into their their, their role, and, and they shouldn't be there. Everybody wants to be the tech entrepreneur. And so you know what? Let the tech entrepreneurs be the tech entrepreneurs when it comes to talking about what they need. A, a purity of purpose is a wonderful expression, and so much of that purpose is is rooted in IP when we talk about uh, the likes of Shopify or Wattpad or Hootsuite. Another Canadian tech company that's made IP-related headlines this fall, maybe a bit for the wrong reasons, unfortunately, is Toronto-based Newlogy. Its software helps companies, including the likes of Kellogg and Procter & Gamble, manage their supply chains more efficiently. Yet in late October, the company filed a lawsuit against a U.S. client for allegedly stealing trade secrets. This is one of the cautionary tales, I guess. We've had a dispute with a company in, in Wisconsin called Menasha. This is public um, in courts today. It's something that uh, is there. Some would say maybe it's par for the course, but it's unfortunate. We want to defend innovators like ourselves. This is why you have you know, licensing and contract terms. You know, there's multiple ways of being able to protect one's intellectual property. You know, you do that most easily from technological compartmentalization, let's just say, encrypting your solution, us being a cloud solution, you should be able to restrict access and things like this. That's the most you know, obvious and easiest one. But the second most is uh, in licensing. And you can have in those licensing terms some very practical ways of restricting the, the use of those so that it can't you know, very easily be copied or reverse engineered and so forth. And then you have obviously the, the more traditional IP protection around patents and so forth, but that's you know maybe more of a, an older line of IP protection. But those are sort of the three ways I would talk about from protecting our own ideas. That was Jason Tham, the CEO of Newlogy. Jim, when, when you hear him describe what Newlogy has been up against, and we don't need to get into the, the, the details or the, the legalities of it, but I wonder what the messages or lessons might be for other entrepreneurs when they think about managing IP, because it's, it, it can be a, a, a pretty rough and tumble part of business. Yeah, I, I know Jason well, and we have had many conversations, and I have a lot of time for his exceptional leadership and his great company. And yeah, it's par for the course, as he said. If people can take it from you, they will. You don't have physical possession of idea. You have a basis of restriction, which is only legal frameworks. And people will test you on that. It's predatory. It's nasty. It's technical. It's a mixture. He talks about licensing terms, contracting terms to protect it, copyright terms. There is a place for IP and he has IP strategies, patent strategies too. This is what comes with the game. It's not a bad day when it happens. It's just another day. And we have to understand that if you want to own something, it's only you only own it when the courts say you own it. So the judicial construct is how ownership is determined. 
and you just have to cowboy up for it and understand that that's a part of your business strategy or people will take it from you and you'll get 5 million when you sell your business, not 500 million. I don't want to use the hockey analogy, but uh, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> We're a country that uh, you know prides itself on being able to go into the corner, literally, and get knocked down or knock someone else down, but to come out with uh, the puck. Uh, and you don't complain about being uh, knocked down. And yet in business, there does seem to be a bit of reluctance to do what you're saying. What is it about us as Canadians, Jim, that uh, prevents us from being more ambitious, elbows up, if you will, uh, when it comes to fighting for our IP? Well, I think we have very ambitious, aggressive tech CEOs. I think we have unambitious, passive policy community. So they took a hands-off approach that says, this is hands-off, it's neoliberal, it's free markets, it's all about mutual benefit and just get out of the way. And everybody else took public-private approaches and sharp elbows and mercantilist practices and tried to change the rules to their favor. I mean, Canada's GDP per capita has gone down 3% in the last 10 years, while the U.S. has rise 35%. Our Innovation ranking is behind a country that was communist less than 30 years ago. This was our policy community that didn't have the fortitude and didn't have the determination and didn't have the commitment to update their knowledge and their policies. And they left our companies flapping in the wind. And then when the companies seek challenges, they blame the, co the companies not, not looking in the mirror. These CEOs are successful in spite of our policy community, not because of it. And they deserve our greatest of respect and regard for their courageousness, their global orientation. And imagine what could happen if we get our policies right, where you put wind at their back instead of wind at their face. Well, I'm, I'm going to stick with the hockey analogy because it would be great if we cheered on our uh, CEOs, tech, tech CEOs and entrepreneurs the way we do our hockey stars. And as we all know, you can't score if you don't have the puck. And in the innovation economy, the puck is IP. Coming up, we'll chat more with Jim Balsilli. Plus, we'll consider some concrete ways Canada can really put intangibles at the heart of the economic recovery. You're listening to Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. 2020 has been a year of disruption, both in our country and around the world. And that's why on this season of the show, we're focused on the ideas and innovations that can put Canada on a path back to economic prosperity. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a comment or a suggestion, email us at disruptors at rbc.com. Today, I'm speaking with Jim Balsilli, one of Canada's leading voices on the new intangibles economy. He's a co-founder of the Canadian Council of Innovators and former co-CEO of RIM. You've mentioned data a few times, and, and, and data in many ways is starting to shape a new era, perhaps, of IP. Some people argue that you can't patent data, uh, but you can certainly create workarounds and ways to, ways to ring fence it. What do we need to understand about the new challenges of data-driven IP? We have the data-driven economy, and it's a new factor of production. So that's an intangible asset. Whether you define it as a form of IP or just a data asset, that's fine. Canada is the only country per WIPO, larger country, whose filings in AI the last three years have declined. And so AI is now generating IP. And who owns that when the machine comes up to the idea? 
There's a race to own this new factor of production. And if you're passive, it will all leak out because it's based on a principle of restriction that you have to corral it and assert that you own it, which is very different than saying you own that shirt you're wearing or we own our lumber, we own our oil, which is physically proximate in our borders. You only own these ideas because global and domestic legal frameworks say you do. So if you don't contend for it and you don't train for it, and you don't orient for it, you will naturally uh, leak away. And we've had a policy orientation that says we don't need to pay attention to these things. I've done business in 150 countries around the world. Nobody does it like Canada. And look at how our prosperity and innovation ranking has been falling. I, I think we'd be smart to adopt what other smart economies or innovation economies are doing, not thinking our our approaches. It's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. You mentioned WIPO. I wonder if you can explain what that is and, and why it matters. Well, it's a UN agency called the World Intellectual Property Organization, and they track and monitor certain treaties like the Patent Cooperation Treaty and also filings of different agencies. And it's referenced as a, a source of research. So it, it's, it's a definitive organization for these kinds of facts because all of the national agencies cooperate with them and file their outcomes with them. Jim, I heard you speak recently about the need for a more integrated view of uh, data and IP and how sovereignty, security, and economic value, those were the, kind of the three points of the triangle, sovereignty, security, and economic value need to go together. Can you walk us through your thinking and how you came to that perspective? And, and, and I'm also curious how a relatively small player like Canada can advance our economic and social interests in that kind of construct when, when bigger countries, you mentioned obviously the behemoths, the US and China, they're really able to shape those variables. Well, I mean, I learned about it as a practitioner. You know, it used to be, it was, you know, IP and it was basically in the economic realm. And if you're good at it, you got rents and your prosperity went up. And if you weren't good at it, then your, you know, your GDP went down. But when you bring in the data-driven economy, what makes data valuable beyond its efficiency things is it's designed with algorithms to surveil the individuals and hijack personal autonomy, and you sell that to the highest bidder. So you commodify the individual. So now it's become an instrument for social control. You can undermine elections, you can undermine the mental health of your children, and you can sell that to a corporate interest. So the social and the economic crossed over. And that was a big difference in data. And that's why we're looking at these regulations. The other thing that's happened as the world has gone from supply chains and tangible manufacturing to ideas and intangibles, these become the, the value chains and the technologies have become the vehicle for geopolitical contention, whether it's cyber attacks for national security or geopolitical forms of warfare, or just the, the wealth and power that comes from controlling these technologies. So you have to approach these things in a cross-cutting fashion. That's what I said to Justin Trudeau when he was in opposition. You can't be in business and not be dealing with these issues. And that's why I say, like, you can't have people who aren't in the business and know how it works or not trained in it or experienced in it be the, the policy keepers of it. Or foreigners who say, you know, what's good for Silicon Valley, which is, is good for Canada. And and no, it's good for Silicon Valley. I don't blame them. I mean, if we're going to let them do this to us, don't blame them for maxing their profits. But we got our policy community has to look in the mirror and say, 
why did we sell out Canada rather than upping our game and understanding what it took to contend, as you said before in the allegory, you know, sharp elbows in the corner. Do we need to be blocking more tech takeovers? Well, you need a lens of the spillovers. We had a very simplistic FDI spillover, a net benefit test, and we didn't understand how to calculate net benefit in an ideas economy. So fine, I'm all for a net benefit, but apply it in an updated fashion. We applied it like if somebody spends a dollar, you get $3 of supply chain spillovers. Whereas in the ideas economy, what is Google's supply chain or Facebook supply chain in Canada? It's not. It's all software and all of their 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 wealth effects and their tax bases in the US. So fine, do a net benefit test, but do it updated for the contemporary economy and, and also look at its impact on innovation dynamism. Jim, I'm wondering if we need more of a collective approach from what you're arguing. And I don't mean collectivist in the old Soviet sense, but uh, putting collective ambition uh, and needs ahead of perhaps uh, individual needs. A lot of things are, are, are measured by jobs, individual opportunities, or by individual data rights. And the collective ambition is, uh, is not articulated well enough. Is there a way of uh, managing both? When you look at smaller economies, and this relates to the collectivity, Switzerland's a quarter of Canada's size, they're global, and they're landlocked, they're global leaders in pharmaceutical. Finland's an eighth our size, they're global leaders in telecommunications. Singapore is a tenth our size, they're global leaders in uh, uh, microelectronics, and Israel is a fraction of our size in cybersecurity. So the ideas economy is ideally tuned to smaller economies who can specialize because it doesn't take physical scale to be well. So I think we have to abandon this excusism, which has become our policy communities, you know, go-to reflex, resource curse, too small, you know, no fire in the belly. No, it's a policy failure. So, so now you sit there and say, okay, we are the size we are. How do we approach this? And Canada was built by community collective practices. We had credit unions for financing communities. We had mutual companies for insuring communities. We had grain co-ops and equipment co-ops and butteries and all these different things. And then we had national forms of infrastructure and canals and waterways and transport and pipelines. And so we were deliberate, but what's happened to our ambition? What's happened to our leadership? What's happened to our sense of self? And that's where I turn right back to these tech leaders. 135 CEOs write a letter and say, come on, let's build this country. Let's nation build together. It's time. Let's build our prosperity. Let's lead together. And, and it's a call out. It's a respectful call out, but it's a very overdue call out. This idea of co-ops is fascinating. In the realm of IP, does that lead to the idea of, a, of an IP co-op where members can access shared, shared IP? Does it go that far? Sure. Lots of companies you know well in this country got clobbered by quietly by big tech giants who forced them to sign a usurious license and undermine what you call their freedom to operate. So if you create a defensive co-op that's a freedom to operate, that basically if somebody darkens your door, they have to contend with that IP file. They leave you alone, you leave them alone. Jim, as we move towards close, and, and you've covered so many interesting points here, but I, I wonder if I can also get you to reflect on how 
all of this might shift given the changes underway in Washington. You've proposed a global digital body to do essentially what the ITO did for a goods economy. And I'm wondering if if that's more likely in a Biden era or if there may be an, an, an emerging Washington consensus around big tech that's going to lead us in a in a different direction. Well, I'm close to some of the advisors of Biden, and, and I have been talking to them. And I, I did propose a digital stability board akin to a financial stability board that came out of the 2008 financial crisis. The issue is, is does America want to be the beacon of sovereign democracy and social freedom in societies and, and the, the right to have a fair piece of the economic pie? And what I've said is America will disproportionately benefit from spreading those kinds of norms. So I'm optimistic. I think he'll jettison the Obama embrace of big tech, the Trump embrace of big tech, and realize that these are very consequential uh, things. And we're at a moment in history. And um, yeah, you ask an extremely good question. I think Canada should be very front-footed on this. We, We have all the ability to punch above our weight again in this area that could make for a far better country and a better world. As hard as this is to look beyond the COVID crisis, but as we try to look beyond it and as we talk about the next chapter of economic development, everything you're talking about is going to be critical. What should Canada be pushing for, whether it's a digital stability board or other mechanisms on on, on the world stage that can give us maybe more of an advantage? Well, I mean, we have to up our game. We have to understand that it's a rivalrous or mercantilist system where you're not trading on comparative advantage anymore. Everybody wants to be the landlord and make others the tenant. But there are places where we can form like-minded alliances. And I think in data governance is one of them in the rules-based framework. Technology is not a form of governance. It must be governed. And so I don't think anything is more important than data governance as a public policy issue because it, it, it creates the foundation to address the issues that we have before us, whether it's prosperity and national security, uh, electoral integrity, climate, pandemics. And and I think Canada could get active in this, could form these things. I think it's an opportunity for leadership, but you have to jettison that regulatory capture by big tech. And you have to say goodbye to those 99 private meetings with Amazon a year and start regulating for our own country and our our own national good and our own public good. Technology is not a form of governance. Technology must be governed. That's a powerful statement. My guest today has been Jim Balsilli. Jim, thanks for sharing your time and your experience with us on Disruptors. I should be with you, John, anytime. Before we wrap up, I'd like to share something that stuck with me from my chat with Dana O'Born of the Council of Canadian Innovators, who we heard from at the start of the episode. I asked Dana to talk about the idea of an IP powerhouse and what that would actually mean for Canadians. First of all, it allows us to be competitive in the global marketplace. We've got all kinds of opportunities and relationships with different jurisdictions in Asia, for instance. But there's a lot of sophistication that is going into some of these you know, joint ventures or agreements that Canadian companies may not necessarily be aware of. So we would certainly be getting much more value out of deals that are you know, supported by the federal and provincial governments. I also think it would allow us to really be a marketplace player or market leader. So we 
kind of proclaim that we're an innovation nation, but we've really got to back it up with the policies that are going to help generate wealth, not only for taxpayers, but companies in this country. So we've got to figure out how to fund the way that Canada operates. And and we shouldn't be afraid of this idea of wealth generation derived from the intangible marketplace. I'm John Stackhouse, and this is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. Join us next time for an in-depth conversation about the state of data and privacy protection, both here in Canada and in the borderless world of the internet. Ron Dieberg from the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab is out with a fascinating and troubling new book that you'll want to hear all about. Talk to you then. RBC Disruptors is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more RBC Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com disruptors.